Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. So Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. I'm sure in many Christmases it has probably struck you that the three Gospels that record what we call the Incarnation or Christmas do so in very different ways, remarkably different ways. For one thing, Uh, The three Gospels that do this, Matthew and Luke and John, begin at quite different places. Matthew begins with history, whereas Luke begins with Mary's family, with Elizabeth and Zechariah. And John's Gospel begins in eternity. And they not only begin in different places, but each of them has, I think, a different viewpoint It is as though we are standing behind an individual. In Matthew's Gospel, I think there is no doubt that that individual is Joseph. Matthew is Joseph's story. In the case of Luke, we are standing behind the Virgin Mary. And this is Mary's story. And there is a sense in which in John's Gospel, we're standing behind Jesus himself. This is the story of the Word who was in the beginning with God and who was God. And these three different points of view have suggested to me a little series for this month for our morning services of trying to think together about Christmas from these different viewpoints. First of all, the viewpoint of the husband. Second, the viewpoint of the mother. And then thirdly, from John's Gospel, the viewpoint of 
the Son. Uh, David referred earlier on to the church family. And in a wonderful sense, then these three Gospels give us the, the ground for the church family. The experience of the one who was Mary's husband and who is actually called by Mary Jesus' father, his adopted father. That's the meaning of the last words in this section. Joseph names him Jesus and thereby adopts him as it were his own son and the view of the mother with which we are so familiar. And then the view of the son that takes us in John's Gospels uh, where we scarcely dare go into the mists of eternity and the wonder of the fellowship of the Father and the Son into which we are brought by the incarnation and atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the most remarkable things about Joseph's story, and at your leisure you can read over this passage and turn the third-person singulars quite easily into first-person singulars. However Matthew got the story, it's the incarnation from Joseph's point of view. And the remarkable thing that I think you notice as you meditate on these verses is that Joseph is the only figure in the Christmas narrative who never says anything. Elizabeth and Zachariah speak. Mary speaks. The angel speaks. The angels in the field speak. The shepherds speak. The wise men speak. Herod speaks. But Joseph says not a word. Indeed, throughout the Gospels, Joseph says not a word even when he and Mary are agitated with the 12-year-old Jesus having found him in the temple. It's a very typical family scene where mother uh, gets herself ready, but then hides behind father and says, your father and I, some of you have heard those words, your father and I have been searching for you. And yet Joseph, not a single word. I wonder actually if there is a real lesson for us to learn there because this story and Mary's story are not just about Joseph and Mary. Of course we can learn lessons for ourselves from Joseph and Mary and indeed I hope we will. But the big thing is what God is doing in Joseph. What God makes Joseph, and why God makes Joseph what he made him to be. And it is apparent that, among other things, he made him to be a relatively silent individual. I say that's a striking thing because in our modern age, we put an enormous premium on our ability to express ourselves, whether it be by technological and social media whether it be to be able to articulate opinions, whether it be just to be able to speak, we tend to demean silence and put a premium on speech. And 
I find one of the challenges of Joseph's life is that according to the scriptures in his life, God put a higher premium on being than he did on speaking. And just by way of opening application, it strikes me now at my great age that over my lifetime, evangelical Christians have placed a huge premium on being able to speak. Preachers are big. Giving verbal witness is big. And yet here is, from one point of view, one of the most significant figures who strides across the pages of the Scriptures, and we have not a single word from him. As though the subliminal message that God wanted to teach us at ground level from this man is, he is far more importantly interested in who we are and what we become than in what we say and our ability to articulate because it is this that most of all expresses the grace of God in our lives. It is this, what we are, yes, that will include what we say, but what we are, that's what leaves the lingering aroma in the atmosphere when we leave the room. Not just what we said, but who we were when we said it. First church I served in, there was a man named Smith. It was actually an unusual name in that congregation. And I suppose over the years I knew him, he probably never spoke more than a hundred words to me. And 45 years later, I can still sense the fragrance and the peace and the sweetness and the grace of his presence. And although this Joseph was certainly not Joseph Smith, there's something about that in his life. And I want us, we'll have to do this superficially, I want us to try and pull out some of the loose threads in this passage that put on display what God made this man to be. That there may be born in our hearts, whether we are men or women, boys or girls, uh, such an admiration for what God did in his life that we would be able to pray, Lord, put the same stamp on my life, that my life may be useful, serviceable, in the cause of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. First of all, the one adjective that is used about Joseph, uh, you'll notice, is in the English Standard Version, and actually in most versions that trace their lineage back to the authorized version, Joseph was, verse 19, a just man. Now, nobody likes criticizing translators who are usually better scholars than oneself, but that seems to me to have been a mistake fostered by the tradition rather than by the exegesis of the text. And I say that for this simple reason, that consistently through the translations, 
when the same term is used of Elizabeth and Zechariah, it's never translated just. Is that because Elizabeth was a woman? And we think about just people being men. No, you remember how in Luke 1, 6, Elizabeth and Zechariah were righteous and they were looking for the kingdom of God. And it's exactly the same word here. Joseph was a righteous man. Even that word can have kind of unsettling undertones to it. We, we almost equate it, I think, in our society with self-righteous. But that's not at all what the Bible means. In fact, when the Bible calls somebody righteous, it's not talking about the accomplishments of the individual per se, but about the working of the grace of God in their lives to bring them into fellowship with God. As with Abraham, who was counted righteous because of his trust in the promise that God had given to him that included the coming of the Savior. And that was certainly true of Elizabeth and Zechariah. And presumably this is why Matthew uses this adjective dikaios of Joseph as well. He was a righteous man. In the sense the Bible uses that term to describe somebody who seeks to live in unbroken fellowship with God because they have received his grace and mercy, his pardon and his strengthening. And so the outflow of that is a life in which they seek to mirror God, who is the great and righteous one. The righteous man in the Bible is the man in whose life the image of God is being restored so that he or she can walk in fellowship with God. It's a word of great beauty. To us it seems a cold word if temperatures can be attributed to words. But to the Bible it's one of the hottest words in the Bible. To be a righteous man. You know, the great William Tyndale, in some senses, got nearer to the Bible's sense when he translated this word dikaios, not by just, not even by righteous, but by the word perfect. Joseph was a perfect man, not in the sense of ten out of ten or a hundred out of a hundred but in the sense of being fully formed, being mature, being characterized by godliness. He, he, was, he was the kind of man that Psalm 1 speaks about. He was the kind of man who was, as it were, a walking, talking book of Proverbs. It all flowed out of his life. He knew how to negotiate life in the presence of God and for the glory of God. And it's very significant that Matthew calls him righteous because the man Joseph will nurture from the cradle will have a ministry of righteousness. 
Remember how Isaiah looks forward to the coming of Jesus in Isaiah 11 and then in Isaiah 53 about his work on the cross. And in both of these passages, he focuses down on the fact that Jesus was righteous and his ministry would be establishing righteousness among the nations. And then those marvelous words in Isaiah 53 that by his sacrifice, the righteous one would make many righteous. My friends, we mustn't ever lose sight of the fact that Jesus learned things. Luke makes that clear, doesn't he? At the end of Luke chapter 2. His human mind was not packed with Bible in the manger in Bethlehem. He had to get to know the Scriptures the same way you and I get to know the Scriptures, by meditating on them, by memorizing them. And it's a wonderful thing to think that for the sake of his son Jesus, God worked in this man Joseph so that Jesus from infancy would have a walking, living, breathing model of what it means to live as a friend of God. And so this is enormously significant, and I think probably the reason it's the only adjective that Matthew uses about Joseph. But there's something else we can notice about Joseph, and that is that he was also a tested man, a righteous man and a tested man. Now, you know, Men and women look at passages in slightly different ways. As a man, I've sometimes thought, Joseph got a really rough deal. God really put him through the mill. Now, why do I say that? Now, we all know that courting traditions in first century Nazareth, very different from courting traditions in the University of Aberdeen. Okay, we understand that. We understand that courting couples would rarely be allowed to be together unchaperoned. And some of your parents wish that would return. And so we might just gloss over this and think, well, God had to accommodate himself to the traditions. Don't you think it it wasn't beyond God's wit to engineer an occasion when Joseph and Mary could be together somewhere and the angel could have appeared and told them simultaneously what was happening? If I were God, that's how I would do it. Tell them both at the same time. Angel, be with them both so that they both hear it from your lips. So why does God not do it that way? (laughs) Why if the angel says, God, don't you think it would be a better thing to do it the Ferguson way than the divine way? Then surely the Lord would have said, for any sake, just do what I say and you'll see why I want it this way. And so Joseph, the interesting thing is, it looks as though Mary has somebody immediately to go to. And she's able to go to the hills and speak to Elizabeth, be with Zechariah. 
And they, that's an understanding cocoon. But there's no indication that Joseph is. Who would you speak to? What would you do? You would think if, if ever he was really silent, this, this would be a time when he would just plunge into himself. His hopes and dreams and plans all shattered. And the rest of his life, if what he hears is the case, and there is an entirely terrestrial explanation for it, the rest of his life he carries the stigma of what Mary has done. This is an unimaginably difficult experience. And there is just nowhere to go for him. So what is God doing? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? He's doing the very thing most of us wish God would never do. He's building character into Joseph by testing him. And I think we probably all recognize there actually isn't any other way for character to be built into us. You know, I, I secretly, the dark side of me always loves it when somebody who kind of fancies themselves as a really, you know, consistent Christian loses it. You know, they get irritated or flustered. And, you know, they lose it a bit. And then they, they always say, I don't know what came over me. It came over me. I'm usually a very patient person. And although I adopt the Joseph principle at that point, what I'm thinking is, you're not really a patient person at all. You're actually a very impatient person. It's that your patience has never been tested. That's why you think you're patient. Because you see, patience can never arise. Endurance can never be formed in us except by situations that are likely to make us impatient or to cause us to stumble. And so you see, what Joseph is experiencing is a form of what Paul speaks about in Romans 5.3, isn't it? That tribulation, affliction, works endurance. And endurance produces tested character. You know, I suppose this Christmas there'll be, there might even be millions of Christmas Eve services that will beginning, begin with the first verse of Once in Royal David City. And there's, there's one of those verses that since childhood I've always disliked. It's the verse that tells us at the end that uh, Jesus is so good we should follow his example. But curiously, that verse also says something quite insightful. It speaks about Mary as the mother Jesus would have watched. Many of you have children. You, you can imagine what that is. The, the baby's eyes, even when the baby can hardly see clearly, baby's eyes focused on the mother. I don't think there is a hymn that gives you the masculine parallel, but there should be. Because after the first years in his life, I think it's almost certain that Jesus spent more time watching Joseph than he did watching Mary. 
in his shop with him in his work, helping him to build houses, make tables, all kinds of things, watching, watching, watching. And here what we see is that God, in, in this hard experience for Joseph, that, that God was creating a man that the Lord Jesus could be watching from his childhood into his teenage years, and, and however long Joseph may have survived and seen character, and why was that character so necessary? Think, think about this from the point of view of if you are just a human father. How absolutely overwhelming it is as a burden in your heart that your son would have somebody he could look to to see how the Christian life should really be lived. And that's what God was doing in Joseph's life, obviously, wasn't it? Uh, he, he made him a, a righteous man. He, he made him a tested man. And then thirdly and quickly, he, he also made him a wise man. Now, now where do we see that? I, I think we see this especially in the way in which he negotiates this appalling situation. Um, here he is, and Really, the decision is out of his hands. Mary is going to have a child. He knows he is not the father of the child. It's only one possible conclusion he thinks he can logically draw. And therefore, there is only one thing that he can biblically do. And that is to divorce Mary. He knows, I'm pretty sure... Joseph and, and his contemporaries knew, knew uh, most of the Pentateuch off by heart. He knew immediately, chapter and verse, there's only one thing I can do here to be faithful to God. And so, as a righteous man, he decides that he will take the less public way here and divorce Mary quietly, in absolute obedience to what the Word of God says. But then the next verse says, as he was considering these things. Now, if you, if you really want to be angular and nasty, uh, and uh, he tells you he's considering these things, you're going to say to him, don't even bother. It's obvious what you need to do. So why, having resolved to divorce Mary, is he considering these things? And this is where his wisdom comes in. Wisdom is not something that you get in books. Wisdom is a gift that God gives you to be able to put what you get in this book alongside what you are getting in his providences to help you to interpret the word rightly within the context of his providences. And Matthew doesn't tell us this directly, but I think it's fairly clear. There was something that gave Joseph pause. You know these quiz games you sometimes see on television where you're, you're shown little bits of a picture and, you, you know, they fill in the picture and you get fewer and fewer points the more and more pieces. Some of you do crossword puzzles. and it's, By observation, it's one of the most irritating things 
to put in the answer to the final clue and realize something's wrong. And I think that's what happened to Joseph. Putting this last piece into the jigsaw puzzle of divorcing Mary, he had this sense it didn't fit. And he had that sense long enough and the character to sustain it long enough. Mercifully, it was apparently not a long season for him. But to sustain the season in which he had no idea what God might be doing or why it was that he felt less than wholly comfortable and convinced about applying this clear teaching of Scripture to this situation was because it didn't fit this situation. And it was only as God's providence unfolded in the visit of the angel, interestingly, in a dream. Joseph's are great dreamers, apparently. That the final piece of the jigsaw puzzle was put into place. And he was told he didn't need to fear to take Mary as his wife. That's a very mysterious thing, isn't it? The way in which God, through His Word, so works into us intuitions that we begin to sense that something is not right here with this conclusion and therefore it wouldn't be safe to act. And it's precisely then that you need the character to be able to take the strain when inwardly you are crying out to God, Oh God, what are you doing? It doesn't seem to fit. What are you doing? And you see again, that made him the kind of man who would be able to nurture the great man who throughout his life knew that the end of it would be something that didn't seem to fit. That on the cross, he would feel as though his father had turned his face away. And you see all this while subliminally, I'm sure, or who knows how long Joseph lived and how much he was able to tell our Lord Jesus about this. But this is the man that God is preparing to serve his son. And that's why the last thing that we should notice is that he was also an obedient man, a righteous man, a tested man, a wise man, and an obedient man. Um, The interesting thing about his hesitation is everything else about Joseph tells you he acts immediately and decisively. So immediately he acts to take Mary as his wife. When he's, when he's given the warning about Herod, he, they pack up and they are off in the middle of the night. This is a decisive man. And in this instance, he shows himself to be so beautifully an obedient man. And they all lived happily ever after. Ah, no, no. That's where, that's where we're likely to stumble again, isn't it? I know what God wants in my life, so 
now the trajectory will be plain sailing into the future. And he discovers, doesn't he? He must have had a sense of it. What am I doing? I'm going to marry this girl who is carrying a child who is not my child. And that is going to be my life into the future. This was the costliest decision Joseph ever made. It meant the whole of his life was now, as it were, being transformed from any interest he might have had in himself and in Mary to them both having a single focused interest in the nurturing of the Son of God and his preparation within their home to become the Savior of the world. In a sense, it must have felt like a, a, a dramatic reconversion of his life so that he, from this point onwards, with all the costliness of it, yes, with all God's provision also for them, would be able to say, all I care for, like Paul in Philippians 3, is to know Jesus Christ. And as I say, this is the man God prepared to nurture his son. Very moving, isn't it? Very moving that God deals with all the details of not only the womb, but the home in which the Lord Jesus would live and grow. And as Luke tells us, he grew in wisdom as well as in stature. And he grew in favor with God as well as in favor with man. And one of the reasons was that for his son, God had made every preparation he needed. We often think of that in big terms from Genesis 3.15 up to this point. But God was in the details as well, as he is in the details with us. And although it seems to me in these biographical sections we find in Scripture, God is writing things in, in large capital letters. And usually I say, beware of people who write everything in large capital letters. But he writes them in large capital letters so that we can all read them. And then read the small print in which he works the same things into our lives, ultimately for the same reason. He does all of this for the sake of Jesus. And he does all these things in us and for us and through us still today for the sake of Jesus. And our response, our response is surely to say, then Father, all I care for is to know and serve the Lord Jesus, your Son, that others may catch a glimpse of him, whether in my words or in my silence, in what I am because of him. Well, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonder of your grace, the gift of your Son, our Lord Jesus, and for the ways in which you brought into his life this man whom 
you shaped in such a way that he would be just the man to serve your son. We marvel at the ways in which you work also in our lives, sometimes smoothly for us, at other times with great difficulty do we trust in you. We pray that you would keep our eyes fixed on what you are always doing in us and for us in order that you may show the Lord Jesus to us and through us. And we pray that in a very different way, our lives for others may nurture the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that when they are with us, they sense that we live for him. And this we pray in his name. Amen.